0: Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the freedom trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 232, A Disappearance in Donegal. Hi, I'm Jake. This week I'm talking about a celebrity professor who worked in the shadow of the Harvard secret court that purged the campus of gay students and faculty. Arthur Kingsley Porter grew up in wealth and privilege, expecting to follow his brother into the family law firm, before experiencing an epiphany that drove him to become one of the world's foremost experts on medieval European art and architecture. After a midlife revelation led to an unconventional lifestyle, his little family sought refuge at their Irish castle and their offshore cottage, until he disappeared under mysterious circumstances in the summer of 1933. But before we talk about the mysterious disappearance of Kingsley Porter, I just want to pause and thank our latest sponsors. James K. recently gave a second generous cash contribution on PayPal, and Jeff S. became our latest supporter on Patreon. Jeff, James, and listeners like them make it possible for me to keep making the show. Like you, I love that it's free to listen to podcasts, but unfortunately it's not free to make them. By signing up to give $2, $5, or even $10 a month on Patreon, our sponsors allow us to pay for podcast media hosting, web hosting and security, transcription services, and audio processing tools. If you're not yet a sponsor and you'd like to become one, just go to patreon.com hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. And as long as I'm talking about our Patreon sponsors, I'd like to say a big thank you to supporter Peter Inn, who emailed a few weeks ago and suggested this week's topic. Let's get to it. Her husband Kingsley hadn't been gone for long when Lucy Porter began to worry. He'd left their cottage on Inishboffin, a windswept island just off the coast of Donegal, at about 10.30. When Lucy came out to meet him about 10 minutes later... Kingsley was nowhere in sight. On one hand, he was known for his long hikes, what I guess they'd call hill-walking on the other side of the pond. Some people even claimed that he had paid two pounds to every family on the island to purchase the right to walk where he wanted with no complaints. But on the other hand, it wasn't like him to disappear like this, especially in the midst of a gathering storm. As her concern grew, Lucy checked around the cottage and with the neighbors, a task that was quickly accomplished, since there are only about 40 or 50 houses on Inishboffin today, and there were fewer in July 1933. Enlisting a friend's help, she widened the search, picking her way through the sea cliffs toward a cave she knew Kingsley visited sometimes. By the time they had searched the cliffs and beaches around the tiny village of Minlara on the eastern end of the island, it was almost noon, Finding nothing and becoming ever more desperate, they widened the search. The middle of the island was sheep pasture, where it would be hard for someone to disappear, so they moved to the more remote western end of the island. The cliffs here were higher and more rugged, and it took more time to search them. Before 4 p.m., though, Lucy was sure that they had searched the whole coastline, and no Kingsley. More islanders joined the search, and they combed the entire island— as the thunder rolled and the rain streamed down. After dark, the search party threw in the towel. As the storm abated, a neighbor agreed to row Lucy back to the mainland, where her friend, the painter George Russell, was waiting. She reportedly greeted him and said, Kingsley will not return tonight. Kingsley will never return. Word of the disappearance reached the U.S. quickly and the Boston Globe carried a brief piece on July 10th, although it twisted the details, turning Kingsley's hike into a boating accident. Arthur Kingsley Porter, noted American archaeologist, has been missing since Saturday morning from his bungalow on Inishboffin Island, where he lived part of the summer. Porter left the island in a small sailboat and has not been seen since. The most severe thunderstorm in years occurred in the district Saturday, and it was feared that his boat may have been struck by lightning, or met with some other disaster. Why was a middle-aged hiker's disappearance in an Irish storm news here in the hub? Arthur Kingsley Porter was a bona fide celebrity, a Harvard professor of classical art and archaeology, who some people claim was a real-life inspiration for Indiana Jones. The next day, the Harvard Crimson noted, up until a late hour last night, no further news had been received about Dr. Arthur Kingsley Porter, internationally known archaeologist and William Dor Boardman Professor of Fine Arts at Harvard, who's believed to have drowned off the Irish coast in a small sailing boat Saturday afternoon when a severe thunderstorm swept the region. He was sailing to Glenveagh Castle from a small summer bungalow on Inishboffin Island when the storm arose. That's right, while Lucy and Kingsley Porter's weekend getaway on Inish Buffen was described as a hut, a tiny rough stone cottage with a thatched roof, they were the sort of people who could afford to keep an actual castle as their summer home, nestled in the hills of Donegal. Kingsley was from old money in Connecticut. His biographer, Lucy Castigan, described his father's side of the family as combining economic privilege with the finest pedigrees in education and his mother's side as one of the most influential families in Connecticut, possessing great wealth, but also having an old family tradition that no amount of money could buy. Arthur Kingsley Porter was the youngest of three Porter sons, born in 1883 in Darien, Connecticut, which was already a wealthy bedroom community for commuters who would take the New Haven Railway into New York City each morning. The three boys grew up swimming, boating, sledding, hunting, and hiking whenever they could. In her book, *Glenvee Mystery, Castigan found out that young Kingsley's grades disappointed his parents, though they continued to express deep affection for him and his brothers. After his mother died when he was eight, Kingsley's father pursued a number of much younger women, before being declared insane and losing access to the family fortune. Castigan speculates that it was this time, when he was around 11 and attending private school in Stamford, when Kingsley became more socially withdrawn and bookish with a series of family tragedies ultimately pushing him into academic excellence. Lawsuits between his brothers and father over the family fortune dragged on into Kingsley's teenage years, while he sought refuge in books and nature. By this time, he was attending a New York prep school alongside Rockefellers and Carnegies, but summer break was a time to escape. He'd spend the warm months fishing in the Adirondacks, trekking through the Grand Canyon, or big game hunting in Canada. In the meantime, his father remarried, twice. His oldest brother, Blachley, was struck by lightning and killed while on an expedition in Arizona. And the lawsuits surrounding the family fortune were finally settled. Finally, at the dawn of a new century, A. Kingsley Porter escaped into academia, being accepted to Yale in the fall of 1900, where he followed a course of study that anticipated that he'd follow his surviving brother, Lewis, into a legal career. During the school year, he spent any free time he had in New York City, which was familiar from his prep school days. Summer was mostly given to hunting in Newfoundland. When his father died in 1901, Kingsley inherited the equivalent of a modern multi-million dollar fortune. He was 18 years old and described as six feet one inch in height. He had blue eyes, light hair, and a fair complexion. He had a high forehead, a long face, a small mouth and chin, and he possessed a Greek nose. Kingsley possessed many advantages, including a strong, slender physique. He was shy and reserved, with the look of a poet, but he was also friendly and modest, which brought him a circle of close friends. For the handsome young millionaire with the keenest intellect and a congenial though sensitive disposition, the world was indeed his oyster. A few months after their father's death, Kingsley and Lewis embarked on a grand adventure to take their minds off their loss and spend a bit of their inheritance. They took a cruise from New York through the Mediterranean to the Middle East. From there, the porters left the cruise and continued on to India and East Asia, returning to the U.S. through Canada and taking a rail excursion across the Rockies. Young Kingsley was hooked. Not only on the luxurious travel that he could now afford, but on the wealth of history, culture, art, and food to be experienced in faraway lands. After graduating with honors fourth in his class at Yale in 1904, Kingsley Porter decided to spend the summer touring Europe before settling down to study law and join his brother's firm. While traveling through France on this tour, Kingsley visited the 11th century Coutances Cathedral in Normandy, where he had an epiphany later described as a nearly mystical experience. In a book about Romanesque architecture, Janice Mann writes, But his life was derailed from its expected course by a transcendental experience inspired by an aesthetic encounter with the medieval on foreign soil. Porter never publicly disclosed the epiphany that changed his life. It was only revealed after his death in a memorial tribute by his devoted wife Lucy, who wrote, One day, in front of the Cathedral of Coutances, there suddenly shined a light round him, and it was as if he were in a trance. When he awoke, he knew he could never be a lawyer. Instead of joining Lewis's law firm when he returned to the States at the end of that summer, he enrolled at Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture. He studied at first to become a practicing architect, then shifted his focus to architectural history. Over the next few years, he would divide his time between the classroom in New York City, fishing trips upstate, and research trips to Europe, before publishing a seminal thousand-page treatise in 1908. Porter himself thought of it as a travel guide for American tourists interested in European architecture, but it turned out to be much more. Janice Mann called it the first scholarly history of medieval architecture written by an American. And Lucy Castigan called it an immense achievement, the first work to use careful examination of documentary history to accurately date evolutionary changes in Gothic and Romanesque architecture. In his book Crimson Letter, Douglas Shantucci writes, At only age 25, when he was a student at Columbia School of Architecture in New York, Porter published Medieval Architecture, Its Origins and Development, like his book, Porter was a knockout. As M.C. Ross, in his biographical sketch of Porter, is observed, the book's impact was huge because he relied solely on first-hand study of documents and dated landmarks. At that time, this was the most important contribution made by an American scholar to the history of medieval architecture, and one that was to revolutionize the whole method of writing on the subject. Harvard, of course, came calling. Before Harvard came calling, Kingsley Porter taught at his alma mater for a couple of years as an associate professor of art history, but he became frustrated when Yale refused to create a department of art history, even when he offered to write a personal check to endow the department. He briefly worked for a commission that catalogued the damage done to French churches and cathedrals during World War I. Then in September 1920, the Harvard Crimson reported... There will be a number of distinguished additions to the university's teaching staff of 800 men when the university opens its gates next Monday. It noted that among the new faculty would be two former Yale professors, noting that one would be teaching French history and... The other Yale addition to the Harvard staff is A. Kingsley Porter, the leading American authority on medieval architecture, who is to be professor of fine arts, spending most of his time in research. By this time, Kingsley Porter was a married man. Somewhere between his epiphany in a French cathedral, and his offer to personally fund an art history department at Yale, Kingsley Porter had found time to fall in love. He first laid eyes on Lucy Bryant Wallace at a party when he was 28 and she was 35, and they both felt an instant connection. Lucy had gone to a Connecticut finishing school, Yale, and Columbia. She could hold her own in any conversation with Kingsley about art, sculpture, and architecture. Plus, she was the only heir of a wealthy Connecticut factory owner, which didn't hurt. They flirted by letter and in person through the summer of 1911, got engaged that December, and they wed in a small private ceremony the next June. They enjoyed their honeymoon in the Adirondacks so much that they decided to take a second one in Italy, this one stretching to several months and establishing the pattern of travel that would mark their married life. Kingsley choosing destinations based on interesting churches or cathedrals, Lucy keeping them organized and on schedule. Kingsley jotting careful notes about the latest sculpture, inscription, or symbol that caught his eye, while Lucy made the professional-quality photographs that would accompany his articles and lectures. When it came time for Lucy and Kingsley Porter to set up shop in Cambridge, campus housing wouldn't cut it for them. They wanted no part of Harvard's drafty old heaps of brick, nor the shabby apartments and tenements that made up so much of the rest of the town. Instead, they purchased the last house on what had once been known as Tory Row, anchored on one end by the Brattle Estate. Now the Cambridge Center for Adult Education, the eponymous Brattle Street had once been home to the elite of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, including the Lees, Ruggles, Leechmeres, and Vassels. During the siege of Boston, George Washington took over the abandoned mansion of Loyalist John Vassal, which was later owned by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and is known today as the Longfellow House, Washington's headquarters' National Historic Site. This was just the sort of neighborhood that the porters wanted to be associated with. So in 1921, they bought Elmwood, at the other end of Brattle Street, which had once been the estate of Royal Lieutenant Governor Thomas Oliver, John Vassal's brother-in-law. After the 1774 powder alarm, Oliver was forced to resign his post, abandon his estate, and flee to the protection of the British Army in Boston. Elmwood was one of the properties named in the 1779 Confiscation Acts, allowing the state of Massachusetts to seize property owned by Crown officials and notorious Tories. Kingsley Porter's obituary in the Proceedings of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences notes that the property was then purchased by a founding father. When he moved to Cambridge, he bought Elmwood, formerly the house of Elbridge Gerry, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and later of James Russell Lowell, the poet. The porters added fresh distinction to the venerable house already rich with associations. They entertained students, friends, and distinguished visitors. Castigan's biography describes the couple's early days in Cambridge. Lucy and Kingsley were delighted with their new home at Elmwood. It was the perfect home for a Harvard lecturer since there was ample room to turn part of the house into a study area for students. Their plan was to purchase Elmwood and to carry out important renovations, since the old mansion was in very poor repair. From the winter of 1921 to the summer of 1926, they carried out major alterations, including electrical work, roof and chimney repairs, carpentry painting and decorating, groundswork, plumbing, and repairs to the heating system. The porters finally took up residence in Elmwood when all the major work had been completed in October 1922. Their new home was an imposing 12-roomed mansion, complete with formal dining room, library, wide lawns, guest house, and carriage house. The building was noted for its wonderful proportions and for its sense of illumination and light. While the porters were busy overhauling their new home, Kingsley was also at work on a theory about how the pilgrimage roads of France and Spain served as a thoroughfare for ideas, with sculpture developing in parallel hundreds of miles apart as the faithful carried trends and ideas along the highways. The hypothesis gelled first into a series of lectures, then to his follow-up book, Romanesque Sculpture of the Pilgrimage Roads. As Elmwood became known as a hub of intellectual life in Cambridge, Kingsley's lectures and courses became ever more popular, and Harvard knew that they had a hit on their hands. Within a few years after hiring him, Douglas Shantucci notes that the university found an endowed chair for the up-and-coming medievalist. Porter became the first William Dorr Boardman Professor of Fine Arts five years later. Still in his thirties when he assumed this chair, he was already the greatest medievalist of his day. His best-known book, still important, was published in 1923, Romanesque Sculpture of the Pilgrimage Roads, and in 1928 came Spanish Romanesque Sculpture, before which no such thing had ever been heard of. It was Porter who discovered it, who showed conclusively the independent development of that sculpture from the French school. No one else had documented it before. A Yale man, fourth in his class in 1904, Porter was from a privileged and quite wealthy background, also happily married to Lucy Bryant Wallace in 1912, and once ensconced at Harvard became not only a scholarly luminary, but a key figure in Boston society. He and his wife lived at Elmwood, today the residence of Harvard's president. And the porters made that splendid mansion of Old Cambridge's Tory Row, the seat and state in so many of Boston's vice-regal court in the 18th century, a centerpiece in Boston's intellectual and social life, where family and guests rejoiced in the ministrations of four superbly trained Italian servants, who, Walter Muir Whitehill remembered, cooked admirably, and hardly less important, made wine that relieved the drought of prohibition. The fascination went both ways, because one of these Italian stewards thought so fondly of his time in the Porter home that his family made it the centerpiece of his obituary, nearly 40 years after Porter's own death. The 1972 Globe Obituary for Angiolo Madruli says in part, In his native Italy, Mr. Madruli was a steward in some of the finest homes, and when he came to this country, he assumed a similar position at Elmwood, the famed James Russell Lowell house." Mr. Medrulli worked as a steward for the late Harvard archaeology professor and Mrs. Arthur Kingsley Porter when they resided at the James Russell Lowell House. Many valuable sculpture pieces and paintings were a part of the Porter home, and frequently during the year, Sundays would be open house day there, as Harvard students and faculty would visit the professor and his wife and view the genuinely valuable works of art there. As steward, Mr. Medrulli cared for these priceless items— Displaying them in a special way and frequently displaying them for special occasions. He knew and loved beautiful things and took an exceptional delight in caring for them. It goes on to note he will be buried in Mount Auburn Cemetery, across the street from the James Russell Lowell House, which he loved so much. Despite costly and extensive renovations to a historic home that quickly became one of the hottest invitations in Cambridge the porters spent surprisingly little time at Elmwood. Invitations to spend a couple of semesters as a guest lecturer at the Sorbonne in Paris and a university in Spain turned into a years-long, nearly obsessive trek around Europe, forcing Lucy to wonder what Kingsley was running from. They would return to Elmwood for a year, holding lectures that captivated the undergraduates and throwing parties that dazzled professors and university administrators alike And then it was back to Greece for nearly a year, and then Spain, where Kingsley conducted a series of controversial excavations at medieval monasteries. In 1927, the couple made their first trip to Ireland after Porter became fascinated with the possibility that Irish high crosses were an older form of art than Romanesque sculptures, then proceeded to Egypt in 1928 to try to connect medieval period art there to its European counterparts. It was around this time that Lucy began to recognize a deep, hidden vein of melancholy in her now-famous husband. At this point in his life, Lucy Costigan writes, Kingsley Porter possessed every asset that most mortals can only dream of. Within his chosen field of Romanesque architecture, his ingenious theories, his original research methods, and his brilliant publications were highly respected. Besides the mammoth books he had authored, he had also written countless articles that have been printed in leading periodicals and collective works in Europe and the U.S. He was a lecturer who was truly loved by his students, celebrated by his peers, and championed by one of the most influential universities in the world. Financially, Kingsley Porter possessed a fortune. Romantically, he was adored by his intelligent, charming wife. Together with Lucy, he traveled the world for months at a time, seeking out landscapes of exquisite natural beauty, visiting monuments, cathedrals, and castles of rich cultural significance, meeting artists, writers, and politicians. All doors were fully open to satisfy his every desire. Despite all of these worldly advantages, Kingsley Porter was growing more restless and despondent. At the very height of his success, Kingsley began to experience serious bouts of depression. An inner secret that had remained bottled up and hidden his whole life was about to erupt and shatter his private world forever. During the trip to Egypt, Kingsley confessed a deep depression in letters to his brother Lewis, and that depression only grew when he returned to the conservative confines of Cambridge for his February 1929 lecture series. That winter, or maybe early spring, After 17 years of marriage, Kingsley made a shocking confession to Lucy. He'd come to the realization that despite his enduring love for her, he was gay. No matter how hurt she might have been privately, Lucy stood by her man publicly. Was she surprised? Nobody knows. Certainly Kingsley had been deeply closeted before he came out to her, and he would continue to be afterwards. But there were hints in his writing, like this passage on Greek sculpture in his book Beyond Architecture. The emotion it conveys is the emotion of sex. The beauty it interprets is the beauty of sex. This fact has been largely misunderstood or ignored because the type of sex which appealed with a special power to the Greeks is considered perverse and repulsive by the modern age. Not being willing to grant that an art obviously of the highest type could have been inspired by ideals which seem to us depraved, we have willed not to understand. Yet, delight in the nude, and especially the nude male, is the keynote of Greek art. Where else has the vigor of youth, the play of muscles, the glory of manhood found a like expression? It is the ideal of masculine sex which the Greeks eternally glorified. This is the beauty they never wearied of interpreting. It is this which is illustrated by Greek sculpture. Without sculpture, the Greek temple is as unmeaning as the music of a song without the words. And the sculptures were the idealization of male sex, that and that only. Thus, the entire Greek temple was made a glorious hymn in praise of sex. A passage in Shantucci's Crimson Letter, describes the precariousness of Kingsley Porter's double life. Of Harvard's Boardman professor, no one could say enough. Marvin Chauncey Ross, Porter's biographer, included tall and slender and fond of the out-of-doors from his youth when he had hunted great game in Canada, he was yet shy and retiring with the look of the poet. These traits are found equally in his researches the boldness of the great game hunter combined with the sense of beauty of the poet. Porter, Whitehill also recalled, was immensely thoughtful and considerate, and he became an almost legendary figure at Harvard. A rewarding and supportive family life, a superb education, a splendid professorship and a great university, physical attractiveness, a highly civilized lifestyle sustained by independent wealth, It's almost too much to add scholarship of genius and personal saintliness. Yet, as Ross affirmed, such were Porter's accomplishments that he's generally considered as probably the greatest American medieval archaeologist of his day. Seemingly, Porter had it all, but he lived on a perpetual precipice, risking scandal at every turn because he was homosexual. The 1920s were not a good time to be gay at Harvard. Four months before Porter joined the faculty in 1920, a student suicide kicked off a relentless purge of gay students, led by Harvard President A. Lawrence Lowell. Using techniques that would later be familiar to Joe McCarthy, Harvard administrators spied on students suspected of being gay, pressured them into naming names, and ultimately convened a secret court to determine their fates. In almost all cases, the sentence was expulsion from Harvard, with notice to leave Cambridge immediately and never come back. Lowell and his goons were even more vindictive than that, though, placing notes in the students' Harvard files that would be shared when anyone asked for a reference in the future. If one of the students tried to transfer to another school, that school would be told of their lewd and immoral behavior. If they applied for a job and mentioned Harvard, the employer would be told that they were of low character and unemployable. In the end, four students were left dead, three of suicide and one from a suspicious car accident, and at least eight more lives were shattered by the secret court. President Lowell's campaign against homosexuality was not limited to students, as Douglas Shantucci describes in Crimson Letter. A historian of Harvard, Richard Norton Smith, tells the story in his The Harvard Century of what happened when an elderly professor was revealed to the president as homosexual. Lowell, Smith reports, summoned the man to University Hall, where the president's habitual pacing often cowed visitors into the far corners of the room and demanded his resignation on the spot. He had devoted his life to Harvard, replied the professor. What was he expected to do now? What would President Lowell himself do if he were in his shoes? I would get a gun and destroy myself, said Lowell. In a way, I feel as if I failed our listeners by not writing an episode about the Harvard secret court when the centennial came around last year. At the time, I wanted to set up an interview so someone more knowledgeable than me could tell you about this tragic chapter in local history. And nobody knows more about it than meet Paley. Paley's now doing admirable work as the head of the Trevor Project, and he wasn't available for an interview. But back in the early 2000s, he was a student reporter at the Harvard Crimson, and he wrote the definitive article that rediscovered the secret court after decades of cover-up. In it, he describes what happened when President Lowell learned that another instructor at Harvard might be gay. In the course of his testimony, though, the student told the court that he had twice been approached by assistant in philosophy Douglas B. Clark, his section leader in Psychology A, General Introduction to Psychology. Clark was an erudite man. The 24-year-old was born in Rome and spoke Italian, German, and French fluently. At Wesleyan College, he was Phi Beta Kappa, and during World War I, he served as a special agent in the U.S. Department of Justice. He received a master's degree in philosophy at Harvard in 1918 and was in the third year of his PhD program when he was summoned before the court. Altogether, Clark taught about 100 students in his sections. The news that a Harvard teacher might be a homosexual led President Lowell to join a special secret session of the court on June 10th that the two assistant deans did not attend. At first, Clark denied any connection with homosexualism and he denied talking about it except to help some students to cure themselves. Court records note that his memory was poor and he seemed nervous. He eventually broke down and confessed to approaching S-14 hoping for homosexual relations. Clark told the court that he had been lying to cure himself and thought he was succeeding. President Lowell told Clark he could not be reappointed or given a Ph.D., and Clark agreed to withdraw his candidacy for the degree. Later, President Lowell himself crossed Clark's name off all corporation records. After he was forced to withdraw from Harvard, Donald Clark continued to lead the life of an academic. He next headed to the University of California's Mills College campus, where he taught for several years. In the fall of 1927, he helped the David Mann School create a new Department of Cultural Studies. In 1933, he published a book of poetry, The Single Glow, under the name of Axton Clark. He also composed music and published a translation of The Letters of Christopher Columbus from Italian and a translation of Heinrich Mann's In the Land of Cocaine from the German. He later moved to Denver, Colorado, where he was librarian at National Jewish Hospital. His obituary in the Rocky Mountain Herald said that he died of tuberculosis so it was dangerous to be a gay professor at this time, but it doesn't seem like anyone connected with Harvard had suspicions about Kingsley's sexual orientation. After all, he didn't fit the stereotype of a gay man. He was married, by all appearances happily, and he was an athletic, outdoorsy type with a widely known reputation for hunting, fishing, and other manly pursuits. Meanwhile, writes past podcast guest Russ Lopez in his book The Hub of the Gay Universe, Harvard students had their own ideas of what were signs of homosexuality. These included non-athletic bodies, a lack of muscles, and very youthful appearance. Some shaved their bodies, shaped their eyebrows, bleached their hair blonde, attended class in makeup, and wore bright red ties. One student, Edward Say, wore rouge to class, while others wore loud suits. The decor of the gay student's room was also suspect. Robert's room had parrots, goldfish, and flowers. Others had suspect books, such as those written by Freud and Havelock Ellis. A. Kingsley Porter was now almost 50 years old, physically fit, and a conservative dresser but he was becoming acquainted with the works of Havelock Ellis. You may remember that back in episode 223, Ellis's books were considered one of the corrupting influences that Boston Mayor Andrew Peters supposedly used to corrupt Star Faithful as he groomed her for the years of sexual abuse she eventually suffered at his hands. Ellis was an English physician who became one of the first to seriously study human sexuality in the 19th century eventually publishing the first English-language textbook on the subject of homosexuality in 1897. And it was to Havelock Ellis that Lucy and Kingsley Porter turned in desperation as their concern over his sexuality grew. In October 1931, Lucy and Kingsley visited Ellis's office in London, though Lucy Castigan's biography notes that they were careful not to leave any record of it. There were no letters between them and nothing in Lucy's diary beyond the fact that they were going to London. Castigan only learned about the treatment because Ellis's biographer, Phyllis Groscurth discovered letters from the porters to Ellis in Ellis's papers in 1980. Incredibly, the cure that Havelock Ellis recommended to treat Kingsley Porter's depression after his midlife realization that he was gay was to take a young man into his bed. Specifically 21-year-old American novelist Alan Campbell, who was also being treated by Ellis. Grosskirth wrote, What advice had Ellis to proffer? There's no way of knowing exactly what Ellis actually said, but in a letter of July 31, 1932, Porter told Ellis, I feel a deep sense of gratitude to you. Deeper than I know how to express, for having put me in touch with Alan. Alan Campbell was a young, aspiring American novelist, a homosexual also, who moved into the Porter's beautiful home in Cambridge, Massachusetts a few months later, and there apparently a menage a trois was established. With Ellis' views on the impossibility of curing homosexuality, and with his own experience of accepting his wife Edith's lovers, the Porters were among the few people in whom he ever confided the truth about his own marriage. One can only assume that this was the solution Ellis proposed for their difficulties. Luckily, having decided to invite another man into their relationship in 1932, the porters had a second home that provided ultimate privacy for exploring this new chapter. As Kingsley's interest in Irish high crosses grew in the 1920s, the couple made several research trips to Ireland. In 1929, they were in Donegal they had spent part of their 1912 honeymoon, and which Kingsley always said reminded them of his beloved Adirondacks. On this trip, they stumbled across what appeared to be the ruin of a medieval castle. It was actually a Victorian-era mansion built to look like a castle of old. It had crenellated walls, tall narrow windows reminiscent of arrow loops, a round tower, and a tall central keep. Built in the 1860s, the mansion had been mostly abandoned for 13 years by the time the porters stumbled across it. Here's how the castle is described on the news site Irish Central. glenvay Castle is a 19th century castellated mansion built between 1867 and 1873. Its construction in a remote mountain setting was inspired by the Victorian idol of a romantic highland retreat. It's now part of the Glenvey National Park in County Donegal in Ireland's majestic northwest. It has a turbulent history, tinged with fame and tragedy. During the Irish Civil War, the castle was garrisoned by both pro- and anti-treaty forces. Glenvey was of no real strategic value, but each side craved the symbolism of holding the castle, rather than utilizing it during the Civil War. Once the Free State was founded, the castle lay empty until 1929, when, just before the world economy collapsed, a Yale-educated professor of art purchased the property. The estate that Porters purchased included a large, flat rock on which tradition held that Catholic St. Columba, or Colum Seal, was born. Better yet, the estate included 30,000 acres, or over 45 square miles, of property. Plenty of room for a woman and her husband, and her husband's young lover, to have privacy while they explored a new and unconventional family dynamic. Kingsley Porter's obituary in the Proceedings of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences describes his fascination with Ireland and his new Irish estate. His inquiring mind was never content to settle into a groove of any sort and he became fascinated with the idea of studying the part that Ireland played in the development of medieval art and its relation to Egypt, to Spain, and to the other countries of Europe. The porters went to Ireland, and he bought a demence among the wild and romantic moors of Donegal. He was attracted in many ways to this austere and beautiful place, and not the least of its charm was that the traditional birthplace of Cille was on his land. Here in Glenveagh Castle, a Victorian mansion, they entertained their friends, including Irish scholars, artists and poets. The Porters also built a cottage on the island of Inishboffin, off the north coast of Donegal. Miles away, the lonely extent of the Atlantic was only broken by the dim outline of the island of Tory, which looked like a dream castle emerging from the northern sea. For the first year of their new relationship, Alan Kingsley, and Lucy spent every moment when Kingsley wasn't teaching at Vay. Eventually, though, Kingsley's career intruded. In February 1933, Alan Campbell moved into Elmwood with the Porters. But their unconventional arrangement quickly started attracting unwanted attention. About three weeks after they got settled... Lucy's diaries record that Kingsley was summoned to an evening meeting with Harvard President Lowell. He was called in again on April 10th, then again two weeks later, and yet again on May 8th. There's no record of what was said in these audiences with the president, but it seems likely that Allen's presence in Cambridge was ruffling feathers. On May 15th, Lucy's diary says that Kingsley was invited to the president's home again, but declined to go. Days later, the Porters and Campbell were packing for a sudden departure back to Glenvae. Lucy Costigan writes, There's no doubt that Kingsley realized he was on the brink of a scandal in Harvard. Those evening meetings with President Lowell led to a corporation meeting to discuss Kingsley's future. The corporation appears to have been divided, with some professors demanding that Kingsley be expelled, while others spoke in his favor. Kingsley was told that the final decision would be reached during the summer. Arriving at Glenvey, the porters mostly kept to themselves through the rest of May and June, while Alan Campbell lingered behind in Stratford-on-Avon. On July 4th, they visited Alan, and he ended their unconventional relationship. On the 7th, they returned to their castle at Glenvae and traveled on to the cottage at Inishboffin. The next day, Kingsley walked into a storm and was never heard from again. After Lucy met George Russell on the mainland that night, the two of them reported Kingsley's disappearance to the authorities, and a formal search ensued. Russell stayed with her for days afterwards, as the police and Coast Guard searched in vain. And then a few days later, Alan Campbell came to stay with her as well. It would have been weird for an outside observer the young lover of the missing middle-aged husband comforting the grieving wife, but Lucy and Alan took comfort from one another. Three days after Kingsley went missing, Alan Campbell wrote to Havelock Ellis, Probably you've read in the newspapers of what has happened. Kingsley and Lucy went over to their island Friday and Saturday morning. Kingsley was drowned. There was a strong outgoing tide. No one saw the body disappear. It's thought that he slipped from a high cliff in the wind. I'm remaining with Lucy as long as she has a need of me. Of course, just now she can make no plans, but is intending to sail for Elmwood in about ten days. I will cross with her. Last evening, while walking, we were both able to feel Kingsley has found release and liberation. Except for her certainty about his death when she met George Russell on the evening of the first day, saying, Kingsley will not return tonight. Kingsley will never return. Lucy's thoughts on Kingsley's fate remained mostly unspoken. However, most observers are convinced that he died of suicide. He'd been crushed by a one-two punch of personal tragedies. First, the damage done to his position at Harvard by Allen's presence, then the grief he felt at Allen's departure. Reflecting on the possibility that Kingsley might have killed himself, Douglas Shantucci wrote, In a sense, Porter had only done what many at Harvard then would have expected of him. Back in Cambridge, Harvard decided to ignore the dark implications of Professor Porter's disappearance, running an obituary in the Crimson celebrating the highlights of his university career. With the death of Arthur Kingsley Porter, Harvard loses one of its most able scholars and teachers. And it's not only Harvard and Cambridge which mourns his passing, but the whole world of fine arts, for Professor Porter was one of the three or four men in the field with a truly international reputation. Although his loss would be a great one, were it only for his works in the fine arts, he was also known for his brilliant contributions to literature. He was particularly interested in medieval and 20th century writings. In recent years, Professor Porter developed a special interest in Ireland, its art, and its literature. He was a poet as well as a scholar. No students ever had a more devoted friend and counselor than those who had the good fortune to work under Professor Porter at the Fogg Museum and elsewhere. Although an exceedingly hard worker with great singleness of purpose, he always found time to make friends and help those with whom he worked. No one will ever know how many students received from him valuable advice and often monetary assistance, the latter frequently given anonymously. A few months later, the Globe reported on a windfall for the university in Kingsley Porter's will, with a brief article on September 27, 1933, noting, Elmwood, the beautiful Cambridge estate where James Russell Lowell lived and penned many of his immortal works and a trust fund of $100,000, will ultimately become the property of Harvard University under the will of Professor Arthur Kingsley Porter. The will, filed for probate yesterday in the Middlesex Court, leaves the Cambridge estate to the testator's widow, Mrs. Lucy Wallace Porter, for life, with a provision that upon her death it is to go to Harvard. The will expresses the hope that the university will preserve and maintain the estate as a historical monument. The trust fund of $100,000 is created with the provision that the net income be paid to Mrs. Porter for life, and that upon her death, the fund is to go to Harvard, to be held by the president and fellows, so far as they deem it necessary, for the preservation and maintenance of Elmwood. If the fund is not so used, the will provides, it is to be applied to the purchase of works of art for the Fogg Museum." In the meantime, Lucy sold Glenvay Castle to Henry McIllany, one of Kingsley's former students, in 1937. He continued using it as a summer home until 1981, when he donated the house and grounds to the Irish government, which opened them to the public as Glenvay National Park. Not everyone believed the tale of Kingsley's disappearance. When no body was ever found, some people re-examined Lucy's quick conclusion that Kingsley would never return, and found not grief, but foreknowledge. These people believed that Lucy's desperate search of the cliffs and crags of Inish Boffin had been a misdirection, keeping the islanders busy while Porter was smuggled away in a small boat. In this version of events, Lucy kept the couple's combined fortune, while Kingsley got a new, anonymous life on another continent he could live life free of Harvard strictures. In Glenvae Mystery, Lucy Castigan wrote, The legend that Arthur Kingsley Porter was still alive and had relocated to some exotic city in Europe or Asia continued for many years. Later, there were reports that Kingsley had been seen in Paris, while others said they saw him in Brussels. A group of American archaeologists swore that they saw Kingsley Porter at Silos." Kingsley had written about the Abbey of Santo Domingo de Silos in northern Spain and Romanesque sculpture of the pilgrimage roads. It would have been fitting indeed if Kingsley had relocated to northern Spain after his devotion to the study of Spanish sculpture for over a decade. Professor Harbison reported hearing or reading somewhere that Kingsley Porter had been seen at the piers in Marseille, and also in a Buddhist monastery in India. Professor Harbison probably also heard somewhere that Hillary Clinton was trafficking child sex slaves through the basement of Comet Pizza, that 5G is used to brainwash people into voting Democrat, and that the coronavirus is a hoax to allow shadowy forces to inject us all with microchips. Can we all agree that the last thing America needs in 2021 is yet another conspiracy theory? To learn more about Lucy and Kingsley Porter, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 232. I'll have links to support the show by purchasing Lucy Castigan's Glynvay Mystery, Douglas Chantucci's Crimson Letter, and The Hub of the Gay Universe by Russ Lopez. I'll also link to Amit Paley's piece in The Crimson, Uncovering the Harvard Secret Court, Stuart Angiolo Madruli's Obituary in The Globe and period photos of Elmwood, Glynvay, and Inish Boffin. Plus, there will be links to Kingsley Porter's obituaries in The Globe, the Harvard Crimson, the Proceedings of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the medievalist journal Speculum. Before I wrap up, I want to share an interesting-sounding event coming up this week from our friends at the Paul Revere House. As part of their series of Lowell lectures, which were coincidentally started by Harvard President Abbott Lawrence Lowell's grandfather, and briefly administered by that rapidly homophobic Harvard president, the chair of African Lodge Number no. 459, Most Worshipful Prince Hall Grand Lodge of Masons, will be presenting at Old North Church on Tuesday, September 28th he'll be talking about the founder of Prince Hall Masonry and a tireless activist for the rights of black Bostonians in the late 18th and early 19th century. Their description of the event says, This lecture introduces Prince Hall as a historical figure, with an emphasis on his achievements and contributions in supporting the argument that Prince Hall should be considered one of the founding fathers of the United States. Mr. Perez will argue that Prince Hall an unsung patriot and forgotten founding father, should receive his long-overdue recognition. The cool thing about this talk, as well as the entire Lowell lecture series through the Paul Revere House, is that it will be held both in-person at Old North and virtually, and both versions are free to attend. Not only that, but all the lectures are being recorded and will be available to stream for free at a later time. You can get more information about registering for the talk or viewing the video in this week's show notes. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcast apps, including Google podcasts, Spotify, Amazon music, Stitcher, pocket casts, and a lot more apps. Stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google home, you can say, Hey Google. Play the Hub History podcast. Sure. Playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still the most popular podcast app. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners.